The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with everyone tonight, week eight of our Buddhist studies class. I was saying it's always a little sad coming to the last week, and especially the topic of sila, moral sensitivity. Not only could we, but we really should keep the conversation going forever. And I don't know, we, I might have mentioned last week one of the fun things to mention when talking about uh, why speech are the topics that the Buddha recommends that are appropriate for conversation, you know, and it's not politics and it's not the best new restaurants. It's things like sila, you know, oh, I noticed this impulse early in the day and I felt it and I didn't act on it and I feel so empowered that I wanted to take something that wasn't mine, and I saw it, and I don't hate myself for having that impulse, but I didn't have to act on it. And I feel empowered, like uh, almost like a superpower. I don't have to worry about those unwholesome tendencies in my mind, in my heart, because I know how to refrain from acting on them. You know how it is, it's like, oh, I can't go there because I might do something that I'll regret. Well, sometimes we can't avoid those places where that impulse is going to come up. And it's really nice to observe it come up, observe that wisdom sees it and is willing to feel what that impulse feels like, and not be confused by it. Oh yeah, it's, a, it's an impulse. I sense that it will set emotion suffering for myself and others, not skillful. I know how to just be with it without feeding it, without getting confused by it. It's like imagine if we, you know, reached out to every person we found attractive. You know, it wouldn't work out well. We know that, oh yeah, yeah, that for me, given how my mind, heart's conditioned, I find this person attractive. And I know that feeling of attraction. And I don't have to be afraid. I mean, initially, we tend to either just act on, like, attraction. It doesn't have to be toward another person, or it could be toward an object, or even an image of myself becoming somebody. I could be attracted to that, too. Or attracted to getting away from something, right? But we feel that can be, in moments, really powerful. Like tonight, talking about the fifth precept, being attracted to getting high. And I've, I'm, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, I haven't really consumed alcohol or drugs now for quite a while, many decades. And, but you know, when I was young, I definitely experimented and partied and did those things that young adults tend to do. And uh, I liked the feeling of being high. <laughs> I still do, you know, now I just have green tea. And sometimes black tea, but mostly just green tea and sugar and media. You know, those are things that I can, and food. <laughs> I think that's it. And, uh, well, I mean, there's other things too, like even movement, you know, dancing, can, you can get a little high with movement. And of course, we don't need to be afraid of being high, you know, Intoxicants is one of the precepts. It's different than the other precepts in that 
The Buddha didn't say that alcohol, for example, is itself immoral. The problem is it dulls the sensitivity of the mind, right? So when the mind is less clear, less sensitive, it's easier to be swept away by habit. And some of our habits are really unskillful. So it, you know, it, one of the ways that that uh, fifth precept reads is to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that lead to carelessness. And that people like that. Oh, so wine, beer, whatever, smoking a joint, that it isn't inherently immoral. That's good. But one of the things we want to remember with uh, these trainings is, like some people might in their particular situation be able to consume a couple glasses of wine or whatever, you know, every week or so several times a week perhaps even, and they might not notice any ill effects in their life. They don't lose that much clarity. They don't make mistakes in what they say or what they think or what they do. But one of the things that Thich Nhat Hanh says, and this, I thought oh, I should give a little trigger warning for this, because you know, these things that the mind is attached to we kind of sometimes, um, yeah, we, we don't want to hear a differing view. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'm sort of not doing justice to this fifth precept without giving a different view. You know, a more rigid, you could say, or more like, no, this is the way kind of view. This comes from Thich Nhat Hanh. And this is from a book he wrote a long time ago. He passed away, you might remember, this last winter. And the book, For a Future to be Possible, is his book on the precepts. And I think it was written maybe 25 years ago, maybe even more. And here he's talking about the fifth precept, refraining from intoxication. He writes, what is the use of practicing this mindfulness training if drinking alcohol does not harm you or other people? So this is somebody asking Thich Nhat Hanh. And he responds, although, you're not, although you have not harmed yourself during the last 30 years by <coughs> drinking just one or two glasses of wine every week, the fact is that it may have an effect on your children, your grandchildren, and your society. We only need to look deeply in order to see it. You are practicing not for yourself alone, but for everyone. Your children might have a propensity for alcoholism, and seeing you drinking wine every week, one of them may become alcoholic in the future. If you abandon your two glasses of wine, it is to show your children, your friends, and your society that your life is not only for you, uh, not only for yourself. Your life is for your ancestors, future generations, and also your society. To stop drinking two glasses of wine every week is a very deep practice, even if it has not brought you any harm. That is the insight of a bodhisattva who knows that everything she does is done for all her ancestors and all future generations. 
And this is kind of hard for us to hear, you know, around our choices. And it's just really good for me, you know, I, I mentioned in the early weeks of the course that one of our habits sometimes with these precepts, these trainings in morality, is to want to simplify them about, like, I need to meet this bar, and if I meet that bar, then I'm, I'm golden, you know, and I don't have to think about this anymore because I'm on the other side of this threshold. I don't kill, you know, or whatever, or I don't kill mammals. Other creatures, you know, but, but remember, they're trainings that have no end. It's not like we expect to be done with the training in moral sensitivity. We're trying to f feel enlivened, liberated by the training. It's a liberating training, not like it's a pain in the butt, let me get to where I need to get with it, and then I can put it down because I'm past that threshold. I'm one of the good ones and no longer one of the bad ones, right? So that's obviously a really simplistic way of thinking about these trainings. And so I'd encourage you to think about that in terms of intoxicants in all the different ways different sense experience can be an intoxicant for us. And it's not going to be the same, like some people get intoxicated by social interactions, you know, and, and the heart just wants to feed, seems to be dependent in deep need of some kind of social time with friends and feels lost and really um, uncomfortable when it's not happening. So we have to just look ourselves. What is it that distorts our mind, confuses the mind, makes the mind not so capable of being stably present with things just as they are? Hope is a drug. You know, there's marijuana, there's this and there's that, and there's hoping, you know, the way our mind can whip up a future scenario like a drug. And then there's like useful, normal, helpful planning that's not so like a drug. So it's not so simple to say, well, we're just talking about alcohol and drugs. We're talking about anything the mind does, the body and the mind does, that really trips up, interrupts this clarity. And I think I brought this up when we were talking about uh, truthfulness earlier. And, you know, this commitment to truth is really the, the whole path, the whole path of being a skillful, wise, kind, and ultimately free human being depends on the heart's willingness to align with the truth of the moment, with humility, knowing that we don't see clearly, we don't see clearly at least completely. So we're interested in that. And so to the, to do, to the degree that we really sense this unavoidable and really ultimately beautiful devotion to the truth of things, then we really don't want to interrupt it with anything that distorts the mind, 
colors the mind, dulls the mind. We really like, you know, it's sort of our real treasure, not some heirloom we got from grandma or some muscles we got because we were really devoted to getting to the gym four times a week or hard-earned savings that we've worked for decades to save up. Those things can be really nice, you know, being in really good shape or having been really responsible with our finances or really careful with our health and how we eat or really dedicated to being a good friend and developing really wholesome friendships over the years and we got these solid friendships now. But the real treasure, you know, better than those real treasures, is this uh, aligning with the truth. And one of one aspect, one facet of that truth is that moral sensitivity. You know, be, precisely because the heart has learned to value seeing clearly, feeling deeply. Where, where else would this moral sensitivity come from? It's all that relatively clean data that we've been collecting because we've been relatively awake, clear. Then that's why we have that kind of conscience, that moral sensitivity, because the heart recognizes from previous experiences, and not only our own, just from observing everything else around us, all, everybody. The heart just has sensitivity to how it all works, how stinginess doesn't really work. Because it's seen it, seen the movement, the activity of stinginess within our own heart and mind and out there in the world from so many different angles, right? In research theory, that's called triangulation. Like when we see something from hundreds of different directions, different angles, the mind can really distill the essence. Stinginess doesn't work. Real generosity, not contrived generosity coming out of fear, you know, but a natural giving always is connected with happiness. Just like real stinginess is always connected with unhappiness. Now, you're not supposed to believe me, you're just when you hear something like that from somebody, you use your moral sensitivity. Like, how does that align with the data that this sensitive heart has been collecting, being relatively awake, relatively sensitive? Do I have data that contradicts that? So when we get a little teaching from the Buddha or from some wise lineage that we suspect is wise at least, then we because this is ultimately, this moral sensitivity is ultimately what we're going to trust. But it's nice when it's confirmed by someone who appears to know what they're talking about, and say, oh. Instead of thinking, oh, I'm so glad you know what you're doing, what we actually, what comes out of that is like, oh, this heart is pretty good. It can be my best friend. It can help me navigate my way through life. Because I see, this is a great thing about like learning the Buddhist teachings, not so much for those teachings that tell us what to do. It's almost better in hindsight where we're doing the practices, but we don't necessarily know that much of the teachings. But 
then when we study the teachings, we go, it is so encouraging to read that what the Buddha talks about is what's been happening in my own life. Right? So then it's almost like I see that the Buddha's path lines up with my own. And that makes me trust my own spiritual instincts so much more. So when we get a moral code like the precepts, you know, refraining from killing, from harming, refraining from taking what hasn't been given, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from speech that's harsh or idle, not helpful, or slanderous, meant to harm, or speech that isn't true, and in refraining from intoxicating the mind that increases the carelessness of our actions, our thoughts and words, you know, then it's like, that just, we look and we see, oh yeah, and you see, this isn't specific to Buddhism, this, these sort of codes of like, don't hit, take turns, <laughs> you know, human beings have been realizing, I mean, this is this distillation of any human being that's paid attention in life, They'll tell you, this helps, being mean, stealing, taking what isn't yours, doesn't help. And then the question is, are we willing, are we going to live in accordance with what, you know, what the data says, what the data tells us? This is a meant to shock us a little bit. This is from the Dalai Lama. I changed the pronouns here, just so you know. When asked what surprised him most about humanity, the Dalai Lama answered, people, because they sacrificed their health in order to make money, then they sacrifice money to recuperate their health, then they are anxious about the future, so anxious about the future that they don't enjoy the present, the result being that they don't live in the present or the future. They live, live as if they're going to, they're never going to die, and then they die having never really lived. Right? And it's, it's because we haven't mindfully, carefully cultivated the sensitivity that will allow us to feel our way. And you know, I've been saying that it isn't about getting to some point where then, you know, we're kind of clear of our moral obligations, we're good, everyone knows we're good, but it's, it's just move, a movement towards more and more sensitivity. And really everything just flows from that. This, uh, you know, what we learn in meditation practice is just the continuation of this sensitivity. We're kind of learning the same lessons in three places. That's a good way. That's how the Buddha organized it in terms of the Eightfold Path. But the Eightfold Path is a more simplistic way is in this three, it's like three healing medicines, three lessons that we learn and we learn because of our sensitivity. So when we're sensitive, we learn 
what really works in terms of the realm of our relationships with others and the world. And this is sila, the kind of gross aspect. In terms of frequency, it's the grosser of the three frequencies, these kind of worldly relationships. We have to food, to money, to sex, to each other, to our possessions, to our body, and how we relate to those worldly things. It matters, and we can use our sensitivity to learn how it matters, so we can better harmonize with all those things, with our sexuality, with our relationship to money, to possessions, to friends, to enemies, to how can we harmonize when we're a human being living in a world like this? So there's a particular ecology of all these relationships on this worldly level. And then we have the middle frequency is how we relate to our own mind, how the mind is relating to the mind. And on this level, we're talking about emotions and content of our thoughts and the perceptions we're having the feeling, tone of all those experiences. And it's a garden too, just like our worldly life with the relationships with our possessions and friends and enemies. That's like a garden that we're trying to harmonize, learn what helps and doesn't help, what leads to suffering and what leads to harmony. Same thing with our mind. And this, you know, this is in Sila, this middle part is Samadhi. Some of you know, recognize, right? This is the healing of the mind, as opposed to the healing of our relationships with the world. Now we're trying to create harmony within our own mind. And when we do, we call it samadhi. When we have harmony in our relationships, we call it the bliss of blamelessness, or freedom from remorse, or the happiness of harmony. And there's the equivalent with just this middle frequency of like, how's the mind doing? And then the most subtle place that we're bringing that sensitivity is uh, in terms of our view, or the this deepest understanding or view, which for most of us untrained people, that deepest, mostly unseen, but deeply established view is, it's all about me. <laughs> I, me, and mine, that self-view, that permeates and gets projected in different ways continuously because it's a deep, subtle habit. And this, with our view of this most subtle level, we're trying to also harmonize. Just like we're trying to harmonize with sila, like how to relate to Kamgar, like what Robin was talking about earlier. You know, we are in relationship with the this Buddhist meditation center and the teachers and the staff and all the volunteers, whether we like it or not, we're in relationships. So the question is, how is that working for us? And there's only one way to find out. We have to feel. <laughs> like, how does it feel? Does it feel harmonious? When we think about common ground in the middle of the night, do we go, oh, <laughs> or do we go, ah, you know, like it's left a good taste, my relationship. Because that's what we feel. Just like, you know, there are a few people in my life, I'm assuming I'm not so different than the rest of you, but when they come to mind, there's some regret there. Like, oh, 
you know. And uh, sometimes that, when I'm conscious of that regret, I reflect, is there anything I can do now to make amends, to kind of change that feeling of regret, or oh, whatever that is. Or, and if I can't, then I try to do what I was talking about earlier this evening. Like, how can I turn it into a resolve, into a sensitivity, so I don't neglect or don't make the same kind of mistake? And this is really what we want. So in a few minutes, we're going to break up into small groups. Remember, this is part of our work uh, in the Buddhist studies classes, and uh, by the way, we will be looking at the hindrances in the fall, six weeks, Shelley Graff will join me, and so we'll teach those six weeks together, taking turns, and that will begin, I think, on uh, Monday the 12th of September, and go to the 17th. Uh, the registration isn't ready yet, but probably will be in a week, and Robin or I will send an email out when it's ready for people to register. But just remember, in the Buddhist studies, we're showing up for each other every other week in these small groups, whether you're online or here in the room, and you're just reporting in. Now, I, a couple of things you could do in that small group, I sent out last week um, these different reflections on wise speech. Oh, here they are. And so that might be something you want to talk about, like your own particular ways of causing harm with your speech, like interrupting. I mean, it's something I've really trained myself, not that I'm there yet, but like just noticing in meetings, wanting, like, but I've got something important to say, you know, and it's like, just that impatience, it's just an interesting place to practice for me. Like, what am I really afraid of? Wait a little bit. Like, I mean, the worst thing could happen is we're wasting time because what I have to say is so important that it means you don't have to say what you're saying. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of how we think, or I think sometimes. So that's just, you know, these little common ways that you use your speech that maybe now are standing out, how you use flattery. That's another thing I, that was longer ago, but I noticed like when I was interacting with people, in subtle ways, I would just find something nice to say about them. Until I started to notice, like, I really like people to like me. You know, it was like, you can think of it, I'm sure it can be really a generous, beautiful, kind thing to do, but it also can be a manipulative thing to do. And it's really good for us to know the difference. What is the motivation behind me saying this, or wanting to say this? What's the effect of saying this? Well, we can find that the answer to that by paying attention and feeling into it, right? And really see like, oh, this, this flattery, saying something nice, is really a power move. It's controlling. You know, it's manipulative. Oh, that's, and it feels like this. Okay. And that's a nice thing to know. And there's many other examples here Um, how you might use idle speech, like how power dynamics, I was interested, I did a workshop, Shelley and I did a workshop with a few other common ground leaders uh, earlier in the fall, about a year ago, I guess now. And it was all about how power works in organizations and 
one of the interesting things is like how humor is different. Like if the head, if the person with the most power does humor, you know, it has one kind of effect. But if somebody else at a different status, different level uses humor. So it's just like even like your jokes and, and the motivation behind them. And is it a way of, like, is it really about calling attention to myself? Is it about this generosity of like loosening things up in the group? Because there are a lot of love can get expressed through humor too, right? I've seen that like, just um, can be quite beautiful about how humor can break down boundaries and bring people together, but it can do all kinds of things. And the moral sensitivity really wants to get at what, it's, it's like honest because it's only interested in what is getting set in motion. Because the story could be a big lie, like what we tell ourselves, why I'm saying this, why I'm doing this, why I'm drinking this. But what moral sensitivity is just following the facts, cause and effect, what's getting set in motion, what does this lead to, is that wholesome, cause for release, is it unwholesome, a cause for stress. So that might be one thing you could talk about in the small groups, just different speaking, including a tendency not to say anything for some of you. And like, have you investigated that? And what has that revealed about your motivation, about the skillfulness or unskillfulness of being relatively the quiet one or the sarcastic one? That, that's another thing I, I should still study. But uh, I've gotten better. And I, you know, I see like where those tendencies, just like I'm sure you do, they're just, we're just a continuation of our parenting or somewhere, it came from somewhere. We didn't invent this particular speech pattern, way of interacting with others. It has its roots, but we're responsible right now to discern its skillfulness or unskillfulness. And by seeing its unskillfulness, if that's what it is, and really being willing to feel the unskillfulness, that is the process of uprooting that tendency, to see it honestly, feel it deeply. Not to hate ourselves or judge ourselves, but to track it and to see what it sets in motion. It's the seeing that it's not helpful that does the uprooting. And the seeing that it's helpful that strengthens the tendency. And of course, the other thing you might want to talk about tonight in the small groups is just how you navigate this world of intoxicants and the kind of resolves you've used in your lives and were they helpful or not helpful? And where do you find you're drawn to intoxicants and how do you just deal with that? Whatever it is, it might be pornography, it might be just um, reading dumb novels or watching TV that doesn't really help you in any way or overeating or using alcohol in ways that you wish you didn't use or drugs. So however you've been involved with intoxicants, you know, that you feel comfortable enough sharing, and just what you've learned about it, including, I feel trapped. Because that's the truth, you know, like, I don't know my way out of this. And that's really useful for all of us to know, because we probably have our own places 
where the mind keeps going back to that well, open, you know, that promise that's never kept, but we can't stop ourselves. I notice that even I have a new cap and it's so sensitive to heat and cold. But you know, I still need my ice cream. We have some ice cream, we had a big family reunion, so we still have some ice cream in the house left over from it. Not that that's an unusual thing for us to have in the freezer, but, but it, it's interesting because it really can hurt. I have to be so careful eating the ice cream. And yet, it's like, I really feel like it's there, I should have it. It's just, well, what's that about? Is that an addiction? You know, is that an intoxicant? The creamy sugariness of that? So let's leave it here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.